Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of ABC Gotham. My name is Kate, and with me, as always, is Kathleen. Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening. I know you thought we weren't going to find something for episode O, but you're wrong. Mm-hmm. We will always find something for all of the letters, guys. You can count on us. Yep. This is all we do. We've even got it figured out to Z, so don't, you know, don't stress. It's cool. Yeah, yeah, they're coming. Um, So Kathleen, what are we doing for episode O this time? The OCME is the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner, which is an important office in New York City. And they've been really important around the world in terms of setting standards and helping solve crimes. It's really interesting because it's the combination of medicine and law. It combines what we can find from the human body and helps solve crimes. In the office of the chief medical examiner in the city of New York, investigates cases of people who die in New York City. So mm-hmm. unidentified bodies go straight there. Mm-hmm. Anything that looks like criminal violence, suicide, somebody who dies suddenly in good health. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a physician attending you, if you're in a correctional facility, so if you're at Rikers or mm-hmm. any of the jails in the city. Also, just anything suspicious or unusual. That's it. That this There's a very, very good resource, and I highly recommend everyone read it, called Blood on the Table by Colin Evans. You can see a link down there. You can check it out. But what they say is, in the broad terms, these deaths fall into one of three categories. Sudden, unexplained, or violent. Right, right. So anything slightly strange. Sudden sudden deaths, a lot of unexplained deaths, certainly a lot of violent deaths in New York. Yeah, basically, if you need an autopsy, these are the people you're going to. Exactly. Maybe if you're already in the hospital, maybe you wouldn't go to OCME, but... So, Kate, what did we have before the OCME? So before the OCME, which was established in 1918, it was a hot mess here in the city. (laughs) Coroners ruled the city, and a coroner could be anybody. You do not, there were pretty much no restrictions on what you could, what you had to do to be a coroner. Mm. There's no tests. Like now to to work for OCME, you have to go through medical school. There's a ton of training to be certified. Mm -hmm. But at the time, like they would say, you know, your neighborhood grocer could be a coroner, you know, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. your landlord could be a coroner. Basically anybody could say they were a coroner. And it was really, really sketchy because mm-hmm. you got paid per body. Oh, that was what a very strange system of motivation. Yeah. And there were th- results thousands. if you get paid per body. Yeah. By body. Yeah. Well, then you're going to try really hard to find bodies, aren't you? So you get paid per body, Kathleen. Mm-hmm. And the sketchy thing is sometimes they would pull a body from the river, get the money, throw it back in the river, and then get more money. I kind of like the, what's the word I'm looking for? For what? Chutzpah? Yeah, chutzpah. I guess. You know, it's disgusting and horrifying, but I kind of like that. <laughs> Here's another one and another one. T- and the thing about coroners is this is in a time before we had what are called medical examiners, like right. Kate is saying, people with actual medical training And this goes back to Europe, and we brought this idea over on the Mayflower, and it's just elected person or an appointed person who just worked for money and gathered up bodies and really wasn't looking into how they died. That was a component of the job, but they were very 
flexible, accommodating. Questionable morals. Exactly. If if a family member committed suicide, but that isn't really what you wanted on the death certificate, they right. could be very easily yeah. persuaded. Yes, with uh, with a couple of bucks, apparently $10 was the going rate to change the cause of death on a death certificate. Yeah, and... Apparently, rumors abounded that for $50, even an inconvenient homicide could be overlooked. So, this was... Kate's Kate's right. This was a shit show. It's amazing. It's amazing what they got away with. This is also the the height of Tammany Hall. They're really mixed in with Tammany Hall. Some sad stories I'm just going to go over. They would extort families on the way to burying their family member, basically blocking mm. the way. Like, oh, you can't pass here until you give me some money. Bribe mm. me, and then I'll let you bury the body. I'm the one in charge of bodies in the city, right. so and, and you have to do this. And when coroners would find out that someone was dying, it was a people would run to get to the not quite dead person to Amazing. lay claim on this body. One example of this is the Worsk family in 1893. They called a doctor in to tend to their six-week-old baby. The doctor diagnosed that the baby. I'm very sorry. The baby's going to die. The baby's just not going to make it. Very sad. It said brain fever. I don't even know what that is. Brain fever? I don't. I don't know. I think it's like hysteria. It's like a thing that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I'm very sorry. I'll write up the death certificate. I'll be back with it. So they leave. He leaves. Baby's just got a couple days. Mm-hmm. So a famous, infamous coroner at the time, Dr. J. Walter Wood, heard mm-hmm. about this. I don't know how he heard about it, like on the street. Like, hey, did you hear? He probably had people keeping their ears out and working in doctor's offices and yeah. Right. So he barges into the apartment and is like, I'm in charge here. Mm-hmm. I'll write up the death certificate. The baby dies and... This guy, Wood, returns and authorizes himself to autopsy the baby in front of the parents. Then and there. Right. And the mom, of course, is devastated. Mm-hmm. He bills the city 25 bucks for himself for the autopsy that was not asked mm-hmm. for. 25 bucks mm-hmm. for his boss, Stephen Whitman. And this was a scam the two of them kind of had going around the city. They're really famous for it and really tied in with Tammany. And they just got away with it. This happened all the time. This is what we're talking about before we have OCME. Mm-hmm. And they had favored undertakers. They yes. had their friends who would take care of the services. And it wasn't like you could shop around exactly. You're devastated. They got very wealthy off of this. Mm-hmm. Very, very. You can make a very good living, a solid living. I think I saw somewhere like $11,000 a year, which... It's a lot of money. 11000 was a bad year. That's a yeah. bad year. And that's a lot mm. of money. A lot of money. Tons of money. And we will have the conversions of these numbers for these years right below. You can see that there. Right. It is ridiculous. And New York had a lot of murders, a lot of killings. Oh, yeah. A lot of people are dying violently. We were number one. By the early 20th century, New Yorkers were slain around 300 of their fellow citizens annually. This worked out. You want to do about per capita is about six for every hundred thousand and you know it wasn't the worst memphis was actually the worst at the time but it was a problem and 
these were crimes that were happening. And, you know, they were happening to a lot of poor people. And so that tended, as we could see from history, to not really incite anger. But it happened to wealthy white people as well. And people were starting to notice that we do need to have a system in place. We do need to have people who can actually detect what's going on, what caused this. And if it was a crime, we need to start prosecuting this. Now, in Europe, they had a lot of skills. They had a lot of information. They were figuring out forensic science. They were figuring out how work in the lab could help give valuable information for figuring out who done it. Exactly. There's an Austrian scientist, Karl Landsteiner. He's the one who developed the ABO blood grouping. He got the Nobel Prize for that. In Germany, Professor Paul Uhlenhuth was figuring out ways to distinguish human blood from other animal blood. They were working. They figured out fingerprinting. Which took forever for... It did. For fingerprinting in the United States to become an actual quote-unquote science. Mm -hmm. It took a really long time here. Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's amazing how far behind we were in a lot of this stuff. It's really embarrassing, to be honest. And... New York City had a murder rate 10 times higher than London, mm -hmm. and they needed the help. They needed to figure this out. Now, we still had this messed up corner system while other areas were figuring this out and getting on board. It was in 1877 that Massachusetts bucked the whole corner system, tossed that in the trash, and started all over again with a properly trained medical examiner. And the way they did that, he was appointed by the governor. He had a seven-year term. Thinking that, you know, if he's appointed, he's not elected, then there's less chance of being swayed by the voters. He could be impartial. He could be objective. I don't know if I... I don't know. The appointment system... Eh. Eh, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the same thing behind the, the Supreme Court. Right. Is that you have your job. Period. So you don't have anyone to answer to and you can actually be impartial. Is it perfect? Nah. We're humans. But it's better. Right. Massachusetts actually, yeah, you're right. They got into this way before we did. Mm -hmm. So things were coming to a head. It was getting ridiculous around here. People could see what was happening in Europe. They could see what was happening in Massachusetts. There was one particular case. And this is early in 1914. A man named Eugene Rochette got a bullet wound to the head. We don't know <laughs> how that happened. A coroner's physician came by, looked at the scene, said this is suicide. End of discussion. There were doctors at Bellevue, when they were taking a look at the body, that were like, this isn't suicide. How can you shoot yourself like this? Well, because even then, they knew about the gunshot residue, powder burns, mm -hmm. scorching. So suicides shoot themselves in the head, hold the gun either against or, or close to the skull. The bullets fired. The gases belch out from the barrel along with the bullet. They can go many, many inches out from the barrel. They blacken and scorch an area around an entrance wound. The farther away the muzzle is from the skin, the less you're going to see powder burns. Well, they didn't have ballistics analysis, really, but these pathologists at Bellevue, and Bellevue saw a lot of gunshot wounds. They, right. they were full of it around this time. They knew about they knew about powder burns. They knew about the distance of the gun. They, they were not ignorant of this information, and... This guy didn't have any powder burns. They could tell that the fatal shot had been fired from some distance. The fatal shot was not fired by Rochette himself. And because of this, they brought this to the district attorney. He agreed something's kind of fishy. He ordered an inquiry. 
and the investigation never got off the ground. Like this is this is what they were dealing with. They know more. They want to move forward with it. They've run into a brick wall. Right. And that is ridiculous. And even while they're trying to fight the good fight, Eugene Rochette's body was cremated. So that was the end of it. I would like to say, since we brought up Bellevue, Bellevue is the heart of OCME for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's based out of Bellevue. I love Bellevue. I think it's a beautiful hospital. <laughs> if you don't live here and you don't know, we will be posting a picture of Bellevue. And mm-hmm. it, it actually is the oldest public hospital in the United States. It's amazing. Yeah, it was founded on March 31st, 1736. Mm-hmm. And if you ever watch the show The Nick, it's basically Bellevue it's, where they're operating. Yeah, so The Nick uh, stands for Knickerbocker Hospital, but... Yeah. It's, I think it's kind of, I, which I started watching once we started studying for this podcast. I started watching The mm-hmm. Nick. It's a little, it's a little graphic it's sometimes. It's grisly, guys. Yeah. But that's how it was. But it's great. I mean, Bellevue is amazing. It also had the, na- the nation's first nursing hospital based on Florence mm-hmm. Nightingale's principles in 1873. That's pretty big. Mm-hmm. And it was one of the first hospitals that had an amphitheater for clinical teaching and surgery. Mm-hmm. leading the nation in a lot of this stuff, mm-hmm. which is great. And, you know, there's been a lot of horror stories but there's been out of Bellevue, a, too. Yeah. They're not perfect, but anything early in medicine can look pretty horrifying. So, regardless, historically, it's a very important institution. Right, it is. And and today, modern, it's very important. Yes, yes. And it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful... This is not going to be on our ugliest buildings <laughs> I think we should do like a most beautiful building. So definitely, I'll put this on there. Like it's, it's a, I think it's a very beautiful building. There's a lot. Yeah. Definitely check the Facebook page and yeah. uh, see, uh, see some images of Bellevue. Well, what happened on January 1st, 1914, Kate? So on January 1st, 1914, Mayor John Mitchell was sworn in and he is like, this corner thing is just not working out. We've got a, mm-hmm. none of these men. He looks at all the men who, hold the office, the actual office of coroner, and he's like, none of these guys are qualified. Like, who are these guys? And he's able to do this because he had run on what's called a fusion ticket. Right. If you remember, that was Fiorello LaGuardia, liberal and Republican, is a reform ticket. He's not beholden to Tammany. No, he is outside of it, and so I'm sure Tammany mm-hmm. was quaking in there. Quaking uh, in their boots. Yes, in their stylish yet affordable boots. Um <laughs> And if anybody gets that quote, you win a prize. He he recognized that there was serious problems with the coroner system. He ordered his commissioner of accounts to conduct an investigation. Oh, yeah. And to, where's the money going? Of the coroner system. Exactly. So there's rumors of corruption. There's rumors of excess. He, yeah, everyone knows this. Everyone hears this. And he's like, all right, is that just rumors? Is that just a political thing? Or is this real? Let's take a cold, hard look at the facts. Of the existing system. No sense in overhauling an entire system just because there's rumors. Yeah, if it ain't broke. Oh, man, guys. It's bad. (laughs) It's bad. So a year later, January 1915, the report is finished. (sighs) Okay, so this person, Commissioner of Accounts, his name is Leonard M. Walstein. He cataloged, the book says, a string of ineptitude and blatant dishonesty that shocked even hardened New Yorkers. The current system is a public scandal, is a disgrace. He said of the 65 men who held the office, not one was thoroughly qualified, not one had training or experience. 
the list of the occupations. <laughs> this is the best part. Of the people who held the office of coroner, because coroner wasn't your full-time job. It was just a thing you did. The people who did it were a lot of undertakers. So wait, Kathleen, you're telling me that the person who I have to pay to write a death certificate is also going to charge me to bury the body? How interesting. Is that a conflict of interest? Very convenient. Yeah. Way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're just saving you some time, Kate. Um, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> there were saloon keepers, plumbers, a lawyer, a printer, an auctioneer, a contractor, a carpenter, a painter, a dentist, a butcher, a wood carver, a labor leader, an insurance agent, a musician, a milkman, or unknown. These guys, oh my God, no. other than like maybe the dentist, no one, no undertakers might have some knowledge. But that's I guess, a, but that's a scam. messed up conflict of interest. Yeah, just definitely. Like said. I like printer. Yeah. <laughs> it's good that the printer had that, that side gig. I, I know. Guess. Thank goodness. Yeah. So you have a milkman? You, no thanks. You have a lot of conflict of interest, obviously, with this coroner system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this was the way they describe it is medical ignorance. Yeah, definitely. Boy, is there a lot of medical ignorance going on. This is ridiculous. They he looked at the numbers, he said in nineteen thirteen, Manhattan coroners recorded only one case of infanticide. But a ridiculously high number of alleged stillborn yeah. and premature births. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. There's baby killers operating with impunity. That's that's how it works mm -hmm. out. Causes of death, each coroner tended to have their favorite. In Brooklyn, there was a coroner who reported four deaths to something called valvular heart disease and four to acute cardiac dilation. Yeah, it's like brain fever. Very superficial examinations. Other de death certificates recorded what it says, an impressive list of ailments that included chronic nephritis, myocarditis, pulmonary edema, police, and the hospital reports in this particular case that showed the fellow had committed suicide by gassing himself. Wow. So they took a look at his kidneys and his heart, but he had killed himself. Men are found dead with clearly visible bullet wounds. The surgeon pronounced the man dead at the scene. He was, had men holding the gun himself. There was, the, the gun had three loaded cartridges, one expended shell, but the coroner decided it was a rupture of the thoracic aneurysm. Wow. And there was no reference to the bullet wound at all. Mm. A lot of suicides were just swept under the rug. It was ridiculous. And one coroner in particular, unusually scandalous, Herman Hellenstein, and he was dragged, kicking and screaming, before the commission. He was on the payroll of several insurance and railroad companies. They grilled him and grilled him about the work he did. And after some hours of being questioned, he conceded that the office of coroner should be abolished. Yeah. They even got one of them to admit that. This, this was a mess. These guys were getting paid quite a lot of money, not doing very good work. With no medical training. No medical training at all. To have a medical position and no medical training. And, and it was an embarrassment. So there's a bill on April 7th, 1915, completely mm -hmm. abolishes the coroner system. That's it. So come January 1st, 1918, we have our first New York chief medical examiner. Now, this person Yay. has to qualify. They have to be a physician, a mm -hmm. trained pathologist, and mm -hmm. an expert microscopist. Microscopist. Thank you. And they would take applications, and the candidates would have to take an exam. Yes. Thank goodness, finally. Mm -hmm. Also, 
there's a separation of powers in that in New York, we suddenly have the homicide squad in the police mm-hmm. department. So they mm-hmm. have jurisdiction over dead bodies. The actual victim, the cops deal with it first, not the coroners. Like the cops deal with the dead body. They bring it to the OCME and the OCME is the one who determines death. But it's a complete separation of powers at this point. Mm-hmm. As we said, Bellevue Hospital is OCME's home for a very long time. Our first chief medical examiner is actually a temporary one. We have Patrick Riordan. So he's only there until they, they figure out who our guy's going to be. And we have the best guy at first, I think. Ah, oh, you guys. This person, almost as much as the mayor, is responsible for completely turning this scene around. He steps in. He's amazing. He is so well qualified. He is so smart. But on top of that, he's pushy. Yeah. The reason we have... The OCME, the way it is now, I think is still because of him. Entirely. Yeah. So and what's his name? We are talking about Charles Norris. So Chuck Norris Ch- was are we the calling first. Yeah, Chuck Norris. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was not. Yeah. Chuck. But that's how you can remember, and you should always remember this man's name. Is Charles, Charles Norris. Norris. Uh, he's also... He did amazing things. Amazing. He's also, besides being our first appointed chief medical examiner, he's also a pioneer of forensic toxicology. We start to finally have forensic analysis here in New York City, which had been going on in Europe forever, which he knew a lot about. <laughs> the reason he was able to do what he wanted is he's born, mm-hmm. he's very wealthy, it's important to know that not only was he very wealthy and had a lot of resources at his disposal, he was a very smart Definitely. guy. He was born into a Hoboken family, December 4th, 1867, attended Yale, and then he went to med school at Columbia School of Physicians and Surgeons. He got his medical degree in 1892, and he was drawn to pathology. But there isn't a lot of great training in pathology in the U.S. at the time, and this is where his cash comes yes. in very handy. I'm sure it came in handy every day. I'm sure it But helped it helped. Lot. 1894, he moves to Germany, and he enrolls for two semesters in Kiel and one in Göttingen before traveling to Berlin. There are some great practitioners and scientists there. One, Rudolf Virchow, teaches him about the current developments and the ongoing research in pathology. Then Norris goes to Scotland, and there's uh, very important faculty members in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and he studies with them to learn about British forensic science. So by the time he comes back to the States, he knows more about legal medicine than anyone in America, and he was raring to go. He's like, let me yeah, He's it. the perfect guy to start this off, mm-hmm. just because, as we were saying, Europe is so far ahead of us on all of this. And having this guy mm-hmm. come who'd already studied in Europe is just a boon. Like, it's amazing. And this is the only way it could have happened. No one was going to just independently set up a school of pathology no. in the U.S. And even if they did, there wouldn't have been anyone to staff it. This is the only way it could have happened. And it's sad that it came to Right. Well, he's also ideal because in 1904, after he comes back, he actually is the laboratory director at Bellevue. So he's already mm-hmm. there. Like, there's already space to do this he knows the people he knows the resources exactly so he applies and took the examination and passed now this is see the problem is right away we start having some political drama the mayor at the time john highland 
immediately is like, no, when you perform these autopsies, part of the exam, you violated the law. You're, you broke the law. This isn't legal. I don't want you in the, this office. Basically, he's like, get out. And he's like, okay, fine. Uh, well, let's take it to the state. Uh, the state's like, just, let him have the job. It's fine. It's just like a small technicality. And so finally, Highland is forced to appoint Norris. But this is an ongoing thing between the mayor's office and OCME. They just are constantly at each other's throats. Mm-hmm. This position for a long time was in the news a lot, and it still is. When something yeah. big happens, the OCME is still interviewed, but at the time, I feel like he was kind of like a rock star. Like, everybody knew who he was. It's, it's the first time you've had an office like this. Yeah. So he immediately goes about improving the department and setting it up and just kind of doesn't care what the mayor says. He's He's got his own money. There's not enough supplies. He wants to hire several, all these scientists and chemists just to set the office up exactly the way he wants and, of course, mm-hmm. like we said, he's got his own money. So he's like, you know what? I don't have to go to the mayor to okay all this stuff. You know, they need more money in their budget. Mm-hmm. But he's like, the mayor already hates me. He's not going to give me more money. <laughs> also, his workers' salaries, generally less than $4,000 a year. So he did stuff to help offset some of their salaries. And I should tell you about this facility that he started right. with. He, he housed his headquarters in the pathology building of Bellevue Hospital. That's 400 East 29th Street. And there's this establishment's long association with the office of the chief medical examiner, Bellevue and the OCME. And that relationship still endures to the present day. So Bellevue is home to the New York University School of Medicine. And like Kate said, oldest public hospital goes back to 1735. And this guy in charge with all his knowledge of pathology and forensics in New York City, where there is a great supply of violent and unexpected death here, he was able to make this into a powerhouse. And like Kate is saying, on top of that, his cash helped when the city and state wouldn't. He had this beautiful skylit autopsy room. He made a lot of innovations. Also, one important innovation he came up with was a telephone switchboard. And that was manned 24 hours a day. So in the past, coroners kind of got themselves over to a crime scene whenever they felt like it, basically. But he, Norris, made sure that there was a professional response any hour, day or night. Which really, we'll talk about some cases later that where the coroner, coroner, the medical examiner, is the first person on the scene to really get to. There's a case that we'll talk about in a bit where it's really vitally important that the medical examiner was on the scene. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just him setting up all of this and getting everything going really changes the entire yeah. department for decades to come. Definitely. And one important thing about Charles Norris, he knew the value of good press. Yes, yes. So even when City Hall was really not happy with him, he had the newspapers and the reporters and the public on his side. Mm-hmm. And this worked out super good for the reporters because they were really well informed. They got a lot of good details and everyone wants to read about crime. And so as a result, OCME got some very positive, very good coverage. And Norris got a lot of very powerful allies. Definitely. So in a case, this is a a good example of how everything changed from the coroner system to the office of the medical examiner. Now, this case in the past would have just gone a totally different way. But because Charles Norris, Chuck Norris, is stepping in, Mm. he's actually able to solve this case 
by paying attention and doing his job and not just trying to get paid. So to set the stage, in uh, 1926, Francesco Travia uh, was caught carrying uh, Anna Friedrichsen's body parts. What? What? To what? Get, what? To get rid of them? Yeah. So they caught this guy just carrying a dismembered body, like parts, trying to get it to the Brooklyn waterfront and dump it. And I'm guessing he dismembered it because it's easier to carry, like, parts. Sure, sure. So they're like, the cops are like, what you got in your bag? They go back to Travia's apartment and find the rest of Anna Fredrickson's body. Oh, my God. They arrest him and charge him with murder. Now, this guy, Francesco Travia, said, no, 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 I didn't kill her. I just woke up and she was dead. And I didn't want to get in trouble, so I was just trying to get rid of the body. Like, I woke up. We had spent the entire night drinking whiskey, mm-hmm. and when I woke up, she's dead. Like, I had nothing to do with it. I'm just trying to get rid of the body. So the body goes to Dr. Norris, and he actually performs an autopsy, and he's like, uh, he's right. The victim died of carbon monoxide, and there's no way he could have killed her. So what he's saying happened was that there was a carbon monoxide gas from Travia's stove that poisoned her to death while she was sleeping, and Travia sleeping in the other room wouldn't have it wouldn't have I was affected him. Say, why wasn't he dead? Okay, yeah, that she's makes sense. he because you know he's a gentleman. He gave the lady his couch, and then he Aww. went to sleep, and she died. <laughs> <laughs> so because of the forensic analysis of Norris and a chemist that he'd hired, Alexander mm-hmm. Gettler, that's how they were able to prove the carbon monoxide. The cops did not want to believe it. The cops are like, no. This guy told me he cut up this body. He's trying to get rid of the evidence. Mm-hmm. It did go to court, but Travia was acquitted of murder, except he was convicted of illegally dismembering a dead body. But he got off on the murder charge just because of Dr. Norris and his, you know, because he wanted to find out what had happened. He actually was not just going to take at face value that this body had been chopped up. And he actually did his job, did work. Nice. Nice. And. I mean, he did cut up the body, so... <laughs> yeah, he, he did, and he didn't go to jail for that. But, yeah. you know, I mean, the cops wouldn't have believed him. He's right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what else can you tell us about Dr. Charles Norris, Kate? Well, he is very anti-prohibition, which does mm-hmm. happen during his time as chief medical examiner. He was a drinker. He did, like, his liquid lunches. He did. He drank a lot. Um, mm-hmm. This guy was a partier. He loved to go out. He loved his cigars. He loved. Um, he loved his ladies. He loved. Mm-hmm. Uh, he loved a good time. Sure. But I mean, he's. But rich. that's not why he was anti-prohibition. Because rich people could get it. They were fine. Right. So we, you have a problem during prohibition of impure liquor that's getting to the public, and mm-hmm. you have a lot, a lot, a lot of people dying of alcohol poisoning. Mm-hmm. Um, this is around the time the Jamaican rum problem, extract problem, mm-hmm. where you have people mm-hmm. with who get the, the Jake walk, uh, where people can't get a hold of liquor, like hardcore alcoholics who want to beat the DTs. And so they would drink stuff like Jamaican rum extract, which it, then the government put an additive in it so that you it makes you sick to drink it. And then you drink it and you die. Uh, mm-hmm. And he has a lot of problems with this where alcoholics, um, just generally the public is finding, are finding other ways to imbibe alcohol in not the safest way possible. Mm-hmm. And it's just causing tons of deaths. He, it's something he has to deal with in his office mm-hmm. every day. Unnecessary deaths. Yeah. 
And he, he gets very upset about unnecessary deaths. Sure. Uh, as he should. And, and the mur- you know, he speaks out against the murder rate as well, but the, the problem with alcohol is huge. Um, he actually gets elected in 1927 as the chairman of the advisory board of the Association Against Impure Liquor. Mm. He, he just really fights it. He fights back. Eventually, you know, prohibition ends, but he really does a lot with the press. You know, how Kathleen was just saying how he, he kind of courts the press. Like he knows mm-hmm. who to talk to, but always going to the press about this. Like this is kind of one of his topics that he really gets behind and is just speaks out against prohibition all the time, which is amazing for such a high, a person high office mm-hmm. to be going against a nationwide law. Mm-hmm. But he sees he sees the problem with it every day. He said he, he wants to abolish prohibition. He says there will be less crime. There will be less need for inquests if the bootleggers and the speakeasies were destroyed. And the only way to do that is to legalize it again. Yes, exactly. And it worked. 21st Amendment. When Utah became the 36th state to ratify it, it ended state-sponsored teetotaling in America for good. And, guys... Within nine months, the rate of alcohol-related deaths in New York had plunged to a 12-year low. And, interestingly, suicide fell to levels that they hadn't seen in five years. He was completely right. Because, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm talking about alcohol poisoning, but of course you have, like Kathleen was saying, suicides. You also have, because you have the speakeasies and you have the people smuggling in alcohol from Canada Mm -hmm. or wherever else. You have Mm -hmm. crime associated with that, murders associated with that. So he's just trying to fight, like, all of that at once. Mm-hmm. And, it, I mean, he's not the reason that it was overturned. <clears throat> but I like to think he was a big part. Mm-hmm. And he he was never a healthy man. And it was in 1925 that he was forced to take four months off of work for health reasons. And then it was in 1935 that he died, actually, on September 11th. And he was only 67. And that, for a rich guy at least, was a pretty pretty young death. I think he lived pretty hard. I think he... He did. It says his lifestyle was uncompromisingly hedonistic, and that does not help your heart or lungs at all. Talk about a good life, though, huh? It's a good life. He did a lot. We've spent a lot of time on Charles Norris, mostly because I think he's one of the most interesting uh, of the crew. Definitely. He was a m- remarkable person. And he held the office for a very long time, from mm-hmm. 1918 until 1935. And they were constantly trying to get him out of office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one particular case, and we're going to jump forward into, this is uh, 1942. A woman was discovered in Central Park, the body of a woman. The police came because that is how they do things now. They weren't really sure how she died. There was some blood around the nose there's a welt on the neck but not really signs of assault or even a struggle they did an autopsy and at this point the director of the ocme was dr gonzalez and he was able to confirm strangulation was the cause of death her larynx was fractured other than that there was no sign of injury she didn't have her purse she didn't have any money so maybe this was a mugging maybe it went horribly wrong the thing that indicated that that might not be a mugging is she had a gold crucifix around her neck on the gold mm. chain. The thief oh, left that for some this. reason. So eventually they identified her within the within the day as Louise Almodovar. She was a 20-year-old waitress and Sunday school teacher. She lived with her parents in the Bronx, and they had reported her missing the previous day. So 
Her home life was sort of turbulent. She married a gentleman named Anibal Almodovar. He was a Puerto Rican ex-sailor, little guy. She married him five months earlier, but she left him a few weeks after the wedding because he was a womanizer, a compulsive womanizer. So they tracked him down. They told him what happened to her, and he shrugged. He said she made his life hell. She beat up one of his girlfriends. She swore at another one. So the guy had two girlfriends. Who's got time for that? Right? And he said, good riddance. And that's a great thing to say to the cops when they've found a body. He denied any involvement in her death, of course. But he had an alibi. He had been at a dance hall called the Rumba Palace. He had dozens of witnesses, the very woman that Louise had attacked. So That's yeah. very convenient. Yeah, yeah. But there were a lot of people. He had a pretty good alibi that could testify for his presence. They called it ironclad alibi. Although Louise's parents were like, no, it's this guy. Look at these letters that he had written to her. Uh -oh. They were bad. They were horrible, horrible letters. These people were not happy with each other. The description of the book is the bile that dripped off every page convinced detectives to hold this ex-husband as a material witness. But they couldn't get past that alibi. Then they visited the dance hall. Uh -oh. The dance hall was just a few hundred yards from the murder scene. It actually would be quite easy to slip out meet her, kill her, and then come right back into the dance hall. Even though they figured that out, it still wasn't enough to hold him, and he was released. So he stayed their primary suspect, because they really didn't have any other ones, and this was sort of looking to be an unsolved murder, but the medical examiner had an idea. He looked at the crime scene photograph, he saw that the body was lying in some very tall grass, and they took a look at his clothes. So when they arrested Almodovar initially, the clothes had been given to the chief medical examiner for analysis. And in the trouser cuffs and jacket pockets, they found some little grass seeds, very tiny grass seeds. Hmm. Which is, ends up being the key to the whole case. Exactly. They take a look at what kinds of grasses are at the scene. They take a look at what kinds of grasses the seeds are for. They match... Almodovar denied that he had visited Central Park for over two years, so any seeds in his pockets must have come from a visit to Tremont Park in the Bronx. They took a look at the grass at Tremont Park. They took a look at the grass at Central Park. Nope. The only place in New York where such grass occurred was in Central Park, and it only occurred in the section where her body was found. They confront mm. Almodovar with this information. He panics. He's like, oh, no, 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 no. I remember now. I took a walk two months ago. Yeah, I'm sure. It was early September. No, you didn't. Because the grass is a late bloomer. Mid-October at the earliest. And he could not have possibly picked up the seeds in September. But November 1st was the date of the murder. That makes a lot more sense. Uh-huh. It took two months. Of them questioning him, but he did break down. He confessed. Almodovar had arranged to meet his wife in Central Park. They quarreled again, and he killed her in a fit of rage. So, in court, he denied this confession. He said they'd beaten it out of him. Ah, uh, maybe they did. Their regulations were not too clear on that. But the jury did not believe him. They deliberated for three minutes, found him guilty. And he got the death sentence. He died in the electric chair, September 16th, 
1943. Cause of grass seeds, guys. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. It is amazing. Yes. And as the OCME grows and changes, the requirements for the chief medical examiner also get correspondingly more rigid. I have a list here of what the criteria for all of the applicants are, and this is in 1974. And if you remember, before they just needed someone who could use a microscope and could be a pathologist and was an actual physician at this point. The criteria for applicants must be a graduate of an accredited medical school and licensed to practice in New York State, must have completed at least 500 medico-legal autopsies, must have five years full-time paid experience in a chief medical examiner's office or a comparable agency, and at least two years of that had to be in supervisory capacity. So the standards are getting tougher, which is great. Definitely. I mean, you have to change with the times. Indeed. So this is a good time to discuss organ transplants. Now, this goes back a little bit. The first successful kidney transplant was in 1954. And since then, physicians have been like, let me add it. Let's figure out this transplant stuff. This is awesome. This is life-saving. By the mid-70s, transplants of the heart, pancreas, and liver were commonplace along with the kidneys. And one of the best sources of donors were murder victims. Mm -hmm. So this is an ethical dilemma for the OCME. You take this view that bodies of murder victims should remain intact until the autopsy has been completed, obviously. But the city hospitals had a little more of a pragmatic look, and they wanted to harvest organs as soon after the death as possible. Obviously, that's totally understandable. Then you have a better chance of success. So the dispute peaks. This is March 7, 1975, and the doctors at Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx went against the regulations of the OCME and removed the kidneys from a gunshot victim before the autopsy had been performed. Now, the surgeon who carried this out, he said the kidneys had nothing to do with the gunshot, had nothing to do with the cause of death. It doesn't matter. They're, they're unrelated. So this was not cool. The <laughs> director of the OCME was not impressed. And one of the one of the surgeon's points was there are 1,800 homicides a year in the New York area. Many of the victims are young and healthy. Those are the best kind of donors. And what they said, and this is true, if we could use even a third of them, it would completely eliminate the need for dialysis treatment and eliminate the need for live donors. So that's significant. That's important. Yeah. And that's something to, to keep in mind. On June 24th, 1975, an Eastern Airlines jet crashed in a violent thunderstorm on its approach to Kennedy. And the OCME have to identify 110 victims. Shortly after that, months later, an event happens. It was a fire in the Puerto Rican Social Club in the Bronx right. in the early hours of October 24th, 1975. 25 were killed. It injured 24 others who leapt from the second floor window. Every single one of these bodies needed to be examined by a five-person team. They were headed up by the assistant medical examiner. They included fingerprint specialists, photographers, a property clerk, and a stenographer. A few months later, there was another disaster. A major fire broke out at the Everard Baths on West 28th Street. That was a bathhouse that catered to homosexuals. Nine men 
died in the blaze and the victims were very badly burnt. It was impossible to, not impossible, difficult to even tell that they were bodies. But this was a situation of violating the operating Well, because, right, you have people who are living there and it's not a place to live, but people do it anyway and and they let them get away with it. So it's sad Mm -hmm. because, and and a lot of these people are hard to identify because they don't want to be, like at the time you wouldn't want to be found. You didn't sign in with your own name there. Right. Well, we're going to go forward a little bit more in time to 1980. Mm -hmm. We have a chief medical examiner whose name is Elliot Gross. He was our chief medical examiner only for 10 years. And a year into his tenure as a medical examiner, he caught a really rough case. Mm. This is 1980. It's at the end of the like really violent 70s that you think of here in New York. The mm. 80s were not much better. And a lot of crime and some crime cases that really like hit the papers. The one that I'm going to talk about now, unofficially, the newspapers were calling it the Phantom of the Opera. (laughs) And this case happened at the Met. The backstory to this case is we have a woman. Her name is Helen Hagnes. And I hope I'm saying that right. Helen Hagnes Muntix. She's a violinist for the orchestra at the Met. She's performing one evening with the Berlin Ballet, and there's three distinct pieces that are playing that evening. There's a piece she plays for, and then there's a 45-minute break because there's a part of the ballet that has a pre-recorded sound, and then she comes back after 45 minutes, and then she played the last half. So the musician's got a break in that middle part, yeah. Exactly. So everybody left. They're all under the stage. They go above... They leave, they do whatever they need to do for 45 minutes, and they come back. Normally, she'd sit in the break room. Nobody really saw her again after that. She People see her leaving. A few people see her throughout. They're able to piece it together because a few people are like, I saw her in the elevator at this time. It takes a, a while to figure out, but she, she completely disappears. Her husband usually waits for her after every performance outside, mm-hmm. and she doesn't show up. It's very sad because she she actually was incredibly successful. She's mm-hmm. one of the top 10 chairs. When they have a performance, she's one of the first 10 people they call. She's only 31. Right. And but so, clearly very talented. Like very you, talented. You have to be quite good to be that position. Exactly. Very talented. Completely disappears. It's like she just disappears off the face of the earth. Nobody knows where she goes. The police, of course, get called in right away. Now, the hard part about this is there are hundreds of people backstage during a show. The security is incredibly lax. And it sounds like just a maze of tunnels and there are. elevators and levels and staircases right. and catwalks. I mean, it sounds crazy back there. Right. And there's passageways that not everybody takes, not everybody knows mm-hmm. about. So there's a million places she could be. Now, the... The thing about this case is that it suddenly brings out, you know, everybody thinks of the Met at the time as like this high society, people with a lot of money go, it's very classy, but behind the stage, there's a, it's, it's very, there's a lot of debauchery. Mm -hmm. People are drinking, smoking pot, people are having sex during the breaks. (laughs) There's just a lot of crazies and it all comes out during this case. So what happens is, the, I think it's the next morning, a maintenance mechanic goes up on the roof. And the roof is actually where sometimes 
performers would go when they had a break, just like smoke a cigarette or hang out or just get a break. Um, a little fresh air. Yeah. Exactly. And so he went up there and when he went up there, he was checking out the roof ventilation system and he found a pair of shoes on the roof. Yeah. It's very sad. And so he finds a pair of shoes and he's, he knew that there was somebody missing. So he immediately goes, calls the cops and the cops come and they start looking in the air shafts and about halfway down, they find a body on a ledge that juts out. Mm. And this is the case where I'm talking about where the chief medical examiner was called in right away. They find the body and he actually comes in and they lower him down. They Mm. put a makeshift platform down the air shaft so Mm -hmm. he can see everything he needs to see. It's not like something on the street where it'd be easy to take photos. It's an out of the way place for a body to be. So they actually, it's, I think it's pretty amazing that he went and like went down the air shaft just to see her body before they brought it up. And it's not pretty. It's very bad. She doesn't have any clothes on. Mm. Her hands and feet are tied behind her back. She's bound and gagged. But he notices that there's a very specific, a very distinctive knot tied in the ropes. It's called a mm-hmm. clove hitch. So Gross starts figuring out that the murderer somehow forced her up on the roof mm-hmm. and attacked her and then threw her down the shaft. But his whole thing is he needs to figure out if she died before she went down the shaft or after, mm-hmm. which he's able to do. He holds back a lot from the press. This is the, this is when they really stop telling the press so much stuff. There's a lot of cases around this time that... it's about sensitivity to the family. Yeah. It is. It is. The press is hounding him. They want details. They want, you know, mm-hmm. she, was she raped? Like, why, why is she naked? What's, what's going on? He's able to figure out that she was not raped, but she was pretty badly, pretty badly beaten after she was tied up, kicked. And then what he figures out is that the thing that killed her is when she hit the ledge. So whoever, mm. she was still alive when she was pushed down the air shaft. Oh my God. It's very sad. But some of, I mean, there's, there's so much like they wouldn't have figured out a lot of what they figured out without the OCME. They mm-hmm. found a partial palm print. They actually found nearby, they found a, a very similar cloth to what she was gagged with that was filled mm-hmm. with semen. And so they, it was, they were able to date it to when, it, when it was created, uh, and mm-hmm. it figured it was from about the same time. And so he was able, they were able to piece together the case that ended up being somebody who worked backstage, who was drunk and had attacked her on the staircase, but couldn't, uh, rape her. Like he had some problems with, mm. uh, yes. So he <laughs> ended up dragging her to the roof and beating her. And tying her up. And then he, I guess she kept jumping him down, kept trying to move away. And he said he gave her a kick and she slipped and rolled in the air shaft. So he's like, well, it's kind of an accident. Hmm. But without the OCME, they never would have found this guy because they were able to type the semen that they found. They were able to find a palm print. Mm -hmm. The guy, his name ends up being Craig Crimmins. And who mm. has a whole Murderpedia page, which I only recently found out about. I'm really disturbed by Murderpedia. But yep. it's all because you of... You can find a link below, but don't click it if you're going to get disturbed. Yeah, it's just kind of gross. And some of the press, you're like, wow, you guys are not... It's a little like tabloid. 
It sensational. Really totally not helping helping this guy. No. Because of the OCME, he's actually they're able to type everything to him and he's convicted and served twenty years to life in prison. So mm. I think he's probably still in prison right now. Justice was done. Yes. So our pal we were just talking about, who did such a good job, Elliot Gross. Mm-hmm. He so he's got a lifelong beef with this guy, Michael Baden, who had been the CME for one year. It had been his, uh, Dr. Baden's lifelong goal to be the CME. And nobody likes him. It's part where you get into the political aspect of this, which <laughs> I'm not going to go too much into because that's a whole podcast on itself. You, you guys know about politics at work. So he holds different offices in the city. He gets shuttled out to Brooklyn, but he's just always just gunning for that office. He only holds it for a year. Elliot Gross comes in. He's got it for 10 years. But those whole 10 years, he is really fighting Baden and City Hall nonstop, nonstop. So the thing that really led to the end of Elliot Gross's Mm -hmm. career as the chief medical examiner was a death of a man in 1983. But then repercussions Mm -hmm. go on for years about this. Michael Stewart, 25-year-old black man, he was arrested for supposedly scrawling graffiti on the subway. He was seized in the morning of September 15th, 1983. And supposedly he was on his way home after spending a night at a club or in a disco. And the officer said that he resisted arrest and had to be subdued. This sounds so familiar. And an hour later, the police van mm-hmm. pulls into Bellevue, and they notice that he had been hogtied, his ankles bound together and pulled up behind his back and tied to his hands with a cord. Uh, there's also, strangely, bruises mm-hmm. all over his body. However, the most concerning thing is that his heart had stopped. Uh, he never regained consciousness, and he died 13 days mm-hmm. later. They were able to resuscitate him for a bit. Uh, this is... A lot of racial strife in the city at the time. And so Dr. Gross performs the autopsy himself, accompanied by a forensic pathologist who was hired by the family. Six-hour autopsy, which is a little crazy. Elliot Gross announced that there's no Mm -hmm. evidence that any injury that he received uh, resulted in his death and the cardiac arrest. However, the pathologist who's hired by the family says, no, there's there's actually hemorrhages in his mm-hmm. eyes, which Gross somehow overlooked. And he said the only way that would happen is if he'd been mm-hmm. in a police chokehold. If your heart, if you have a heart problem or your heart stops, you're not going to have hemorrhages in your eyes. The weird thing is, so a day after his findings, the forensic pathologist's findings come out. Gross returned to the autopsy room, removed Stewart's eyes, and placed them in formalin, which is a solution that preserves the tissue. But it eliminates any traces of blood. So a few days later, yeah, yeah. The, a few days later, toxicology comes back. There's traces of alcohol in Stewart's blood. Mm. So he says, nah, maybe this actually contributed to his death. Mm. So it's kind of a mess. Yeah. And everybody's mad at him. Like, how could you? The one clue, the eyes, that's a big thing. He keeps waffling back and forth on how he died. Eventually, Gross states that the death was due to a traumatic injury to the cervical vertebrae, mm. which he implies that Stewart injured himself falling down drunk. Mm. It's really terrible. Yeah. Nobody believes him. Nobody believes him. 
However, the police officers are still brought forth on charges in the complicity of his death. Mm-hmm. And when the case finally comes to trial in 1985, everybody's going after Gross because he's waffled back and forth. He has a third opinion at this point, which is no opinion. Mm. He says, I don't know how he died. And this case just dogs him until the end. And finally, the mayor steps in. Ed Koch is the mayor at the time. He forms a mayoral advisory board. Even Mario Cuomo, who's the governor at the time, starts criticizing the management and lodges charges of gross incompetence or neglect. The press is against him Mm. and says that gross is competent as a pathologist, but deficient as a manager. And then finally Koch does a press conference and says Mm. he's going to decide whether to dismiss Gross. He's got 10 days to dismiss Gross, decide what to do. Mm -hmm. And Gross, he gets fired. He's out. That was pretty bad. Yeah. I think the thing with Gross is that he's a good, like you say, he's a good pathologist. He knows what he's doing. However, Mm -hmm. he's terrible at the political game. Mm. He's constantly influenced by other people. Yeah. And so they're like, we need to clean up the office. We need to bring in a good guy. Yeah. And they yeah. do. Then we have Charles Hirsch, Charles who Hirsch. is our next chief medical examiner. Hirsch is our examiner only until last year, from 1989 all the way till 2014. And I think he's as influential as Charles Norris. Yeah. No, you're right. Yeah. In his own way. You're absolutely right. Who's Charles Hirsch, Kate? Uh, he is actually the, he's 51 when he becomes uh, chief medical examiner. Pretty young compared, a lot of these guys that we're talking about are in their 70s by the time they're out. Like they're, this is a job you hold for a while, but they're in their 60s, late 60s, sometimes by the time they get into office. Sure, you got to be pretty experienced just to get this job. So their entire right. career can be building towards this. Yeah. Right. And you can imagine that before Hirsch came in, they were really vetting. They were looking for a great, a good guy, mm-hmm. considering how much drama that, this office had at the end of Elliot Gross. They needed the stakes are so high. You've really got to have someone impeccable. Right. And this guy is great. Mm-hmm. He's the first non-native New Yorker to hold mm-hmm. the office. And actually something, a side note that's interesting, the first woman to hold the office was temporary right before him. That was, mm. it's amazing it took that long. But mm-hmm. so he, he studied at the University of Illinois Urbana. Mm-hmm. And he attended University of Illinois College of Medicine campus in Chicago, where he received mm-hmm. his medical, his MD in 1962. He's a forensic pathologist in Baltimore for a while. He had a dream about opening a practice in Alaska before he settles down as the chief medical examiner of Suffolk County, New York, mm-hmm. uh, an office that performed about 15,000 autopsies per year. So that's Long Island, right? Suffolk County? That's, that's Long Island, yeah. Okay. Which... That sounds like a lot of bodies, but not compared to how many bodies we have here. No, ma'am. So, what do you have about Charles Hirsch? Well, he was on hand for one of the most sensational American trials of the 80s. Kate, do you remember the Subway Vigilante? I do, actually. I remember hearing about it. Yeah, I we wasn't were, here, but I do remember hearing about it. We were it. pretty young at the time, but just to give everyone a recap, this was a really sad and fascinating story. The defendant of this trial was a 36-year-old electrical engineer, Bernhard Goetz, G-O-E-T-Z. He was accused of shooting four young black males on the subway. So this was so sensational. Everyone heard about this all over the world. They heard about this December 1984 shooting that left one man paralyzed, three others were injured. 
Gertz's claim was that he opened fire because the men had surrounded him and he was afraid he was going to be robbed. And this, everyone was so sympathetic. The subways are a mess. Crime is insane. Some people were like, nah, I'm not so sure. And the state, the prosecutors, portrayed him as an unbalanced racist out to get revenge for having been mugged twice before. So there were two years, headlines all over the place, and before the trial finally happened, the defense put together a lineup of expert witnesses, and one of them was a former chief medical examiner, Dr. Dominic DeMeo. We didn't mention him too much, but he has plenty of his own stories. He told the court that by tracking the course of the bullet wounds, he could determine that the victims were standing in a semicircle around Gertz at yes. the time that they were shot, just like the defendant claimed. And the most seriously injured of the four men was Daryl Kibbe, that he couldn't have been seated. The prosecution was saying, this guy is seated and you shot him. And from the direction of the bullets, he couldn't have been. So Hirsch was called to be the rebuttal witness. And he was appalled by Dr. DeMeo's conclusions he thought that DeMeo's testimony was completely false. It is wow. unsupported by fact. It is unsupportable. And that was very dramatic for courtroom shenanigans. Usually expert witnesses are not like directly critical of each other. So that was, whoa. I just love that he stands up and he's like, no. Mm-mm. No, this, this guy's wrong. Not I don't true. know who came up with that. So Hirsch had a striking testimony. And when the jury came back... The subway vigilante was acquitted of attempted murder charges. He actually served a few months, but just for illegal weapon possession. At any rate, what this trial did was highlight Hirsch's super effective courtroom manner. So some experts are not really great expert witnesses. If you use too much jargon, if you use too many acronyms, if you use all these non sequiturs, you lose the jury. Yeah. They just get bored. They might like you, but they check out. He was lucid. He was clear cut. He didn't use fancy words. He was concise. And that was gold. Yeah, he's different, especially from Elliot Gross, where Mm -hmm. he's competent and good on trial. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He doesn't waver. He just says, this is it. This is what's, this is what happened. Very, in simple, succinct sentences, he's able to get the jury to understand probably a very complex situation. Definitely. Definitely. So right around 1990 was a, a very interesting time for the homicide rate. And sociologists and criminologists still don't know why, but the murder toll started to drop every year. Everyone agrees there were more police, there was a greater police presence on the streets, there were better levels of forensic detection, but it did this very dramatically. The bottom of the murder graph was reached in 2005. The total number of homicides fell to 539. That was the fewest homicides since 1963, guys. It's kind of, it's kind of, yeah. It's awesome. It's awesome. There are a number of things that could have caused this, but it was it was looking good on the murder front. Nice work, guys, keeping from killing each other. But this really great development was overshadowed. And the thing happened on February 26, 1993. 
This was when a bomb exploded at the World Trade Center. So just to review very quickly, although I'm sure a lot of you might remember this, but a van con containing 1,310 pounds of explosives had been parked in an underground garage of the North Tower. That was Tower 1. The intention was it would blast, cause Tower 1 to collapse, and it would collapse onto Tower 2. That was the idea. They really underestimated how much explosives was necessary, right. and it obviously didn't happen. The tower shuddered on its foundations, but the structure obviously withstood the blast. They had search and rescue teams. Six people died. More than a thousand were injured. This was terrifying. It was a wake-up call, and suddenly it was very clear that it wasn't hard to attack New York in this way. It was a few hundred dollars worth of commercially available chemicals. They had almost silenced, the way the book phrases this, the iconic heartbeat of American capitalism. And six people were ultimately imprisoned for their part in this crime, and their sentences ranged up to 240 years. Well, well, 240 mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't want to say it's funny. It's a little strange. On September 10th, 2001, mm -hmm. there was a case that would normally have been a very big case for the OCME to deal with. There was an off-duty cop who killed a family, including a pregnant woman, while drunk driving. Mm -hmm. And it was controversial. So the baby was delivered, but Charles Hirsch's statement was that the baby was stillborn. Like it was not, it was not born alive. Well, this is what's interesting. So the baby had been delivered by C-section, never took a breath on his own, lived no. for half a day, only with the aid of drugs. Hirsch said the baby was stillborn, but the DA's office, now they're right. looking at the elections coming up, Homicide. victims, furious relatives, the DA's office, everyone wanted little Ricardo Herrera, that's his name, added to the list of murder victims. Hirsch refused to change his finding from stillborn to murder victim. The DA overruled. This is almost unheard of. Yeah. That the chief medical examiner is overruled. And he was not happy about this, but he was ready to move on. And again, like Kate said, that was September 10th, 2001. Right. So it it was something that would have hit the papers and been everywhere. However, mm -hmm. then, of course, the next morning changes everything, mm -hmm. uh, not just for the OCME, but for New York. For the world. For the world. And we deliberately left September 11th out of this episode. Not to say that the OCME didn't have an important role in September 11th, but that it was too much information, and we will be doing an entire episode dedicated to September 11th in the future, where we will discuss the stories that came out of the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. Well, sorry to end a bit on a down note. Well, on a tiny bit of an up note, you know, there's, there's always new developments. There's new facilities. In February of 2007, the OCME opened a new High-sensitivity forensic biology DNA lab. This is 421 East 26th Street. Stop on by. Say hi. Cost over $250 million. It is the finest facility of its kind in North America and on par with ones, the top ones around the world. 
Everything's top of the line. There's a very sophisticated battery backup power system in case there's any calamitous power outage during any future disaster. And that will make sure that there are no power fluctuations that could damage either the samples or the fancy hardware and software that they're working with to solve our crimes for us. And at this point with this new lab, they've been able to identify people using as little as six human cells. Wow. Six cells. Yeah. I mean, people leave that many skin cells in a fingerprint. So there are a lot of really impressive developments. And we ultimately have Charles Norris to thank for making this the great system it is and subsequent chief medical examiners for keeping the standards high. Yeah. Um, well, I hope you got to learn a little bit more about the city you live in or New York City if you don't live here. Come mm-hmm. visit. And we'll see you next time for episode P. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Broadway opens up her arms when the crimson skyline bruises black and lights up like a favorite song. For more ABC Gotham, go to our website www.abcgotham.podbean.com Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, all rights reserved. This night of New York City was a, a very interesting time for the homicide rate and Scientologists, sociologists, criminologists, we're still not sure why. Did you say Scientologists? I did say Scientologists. Because <laughs> <laughs> I said, I started to say scientist, but the word <laughs> is sociologists. <laughs> changed course midway through. That's brilliant. Okay. Okay. Um, so sociologists and criminologists still don't know why. <laughs>